happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 154 for November 6th, 2019. My name is Jason Neifer and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you tonight? Well, I am well. As we were talking, and we'll talk about a little later, I feel, I don't even have the right words, I, I feel very off balance and, um, you know, like a fool with regard to security stuff. Not because I have been hacked or we've had something traumatic happen, but I've actually been following your advice and, you know, doing what I think all good listeners of the EdTech Situation Room will be doing right now in terms of auditing their password policies. And so anyway, we can talk more about that. So, but I'm doing well and uh, just a little bit sad. We've got another uh, two nights with our French exchange student uh, who's been with us. Then that has been a great thing. So are you all in the throes of winter as it were, or is fall continuing there in Missoula? We got a little fall reprieve here. So as it turns out, we did have two early kind of snow uh, drops, uh, one at the beginning of October and one at the end of October. And October is kind of a hit or miss month for us. We can oftentimes have an early winter here. But uh, this week, the highs are in the mid-50s, which is a nice reprieve from the snow of a couple weeks back. We did get close to zero about a week and a half ago. Um, but it's nice. And I have to say Missoula is in a valley. We get a lot of inversion here. And so fog and smog and, and nasty can set into here. But um, as I think I mentioned uh, in some episodes past, we've been uh, placed in new offices at the University of Montana in a newly constructed wing. And we have beautiful windows that look right onto the center of campus. And so when the sun is out, it's likely shining in our windows. And I've been taking every advantage of sticking my face in the sun. Uh, maybe, I'm sorry, my face is in a laptop, but I'm sitting in the beam of the sun uh, at work. So we try to get as much sun here as possible. But I don't think we're here to talk about the weather, Wes. What is the EdTech Situation Room? Well, we are here to talk about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. And we have, uh, as always, compiled a series of articles that you can find at edtechsr.com links. And those will be the topic of tonight's conversation. Excellent. Well, um, I want to start off, and I honestly can't remember if we talked about this last week or not. I don't think we did, but I believe that Apple um, released, it was either right before the show or right after the show last week, AirPods Pro. Yeah, and, that was right before. We just mentioned the, the okay. headline, I think. Well, I have to say, now that I've been around my Apple people, and I've got a lot of folks in my life that are all Apple, and I want to be really clear, when I first started at the Digital Academy in 2010, I was the Apple guy there, and I got made fun of a lot for being Apple guy. And eventually I moved over to Android, and now I'm Chrome OS Android guy, but... Now everyone else in the office is super into Apple, but both my boss and my colleague Mike uh, uh, are, have iPhones, and uh, Mike, who has resisted the AirPods thing, is all in on a pair of AirPods Pro, and as it turns out, the AirPod Pro uh, is tempting a lot of my Apple uh, fan friends that, that are out there. So I guess I need to start with, Wes, have you jumped on any particular wireless solutions yet, and are the AirPods in any way tempting to you? 
no. Well, they are tempting. Um, our daughter has AirPods. I am really interested in the, in the noise canceling features of that. That looks pretty phenomenal. But no, I am sporting a Target, you know, nine ninety nine set of uh, of head of headphones here, which you know are are going to work for now. But are is it the air the noise canceling that's really got you interested, or what's your oh, I'm I'm not particularly interested. Um, that uh, I think it's two hundred forty nine dollars is a lot of money to pay for what is effectively um a uh you know wireless speed headphones i think i mentioned last week when we talked about uh the uh uh the new airpods that i actually have a pair of uh they're called uh, teotronic it's one of the uh, uh typical makers of peripherals on 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 amazon like uh, anchor or aki and um i bought them early on they were at a substantial discount the first uh, couple of weeks because they were looking for reviews and i purchased a pair and i really like them a lot they don't have noise canceling but i like the notion of the wireless um, uh, functionality. I like the little uh, uh, charging pod they come in and they're enormously convenient. And I think there's a lot to that, but the noise canceling part of it is probably not enough for me to pay 250 for them. And even if I was on the iOS uh, uh, ecosystem, which I'm not, but interesting that I think so many people are doing that. And my friend Mike also let me know he has a, a child that just started high school that uh, according to his kiddo, um, the AirPods are a very big status piece. Uh, oh, set. I can vouch for that. In fact, Alexander, our son, who's a senior, had recommended some some off-brand, you know, Amazon ones. And um, our 16-year-old, I'd, I'd gotten some of those. And those just, they they lit up and they were clearly visible like these aren't, you know, the Apple iPods. Right, right, or right, AirPods, right, right. AirPods, sorry. And so anyway, and then they actually didn't last very long. Um, they broke. And so... She used some of her own money and purchased some of the previous version um, right. AirPods and loves them. And yeah, they're they're definitely it's definitely a status thing. Well, and I can also report too that one of the things I love to do when I travel, and I'm I like traveling anyways. I love airports, absolutely love airports. I always have, probably because I didn't get an opportunity much as a kid to use utilize them. But uh, uh, one of the things I like to look out in airports is to look out for tech, right? Like to see what people are using, see what people are carrying around, what laptops business people are carrying, what casual uh, tech people are carrying. And I got to say, I don't spot a ton of wireless pods, even the ones with the wires on them that kind of go around the back of the neck. I don't spot a ton of those, but this last trip I made to Seattle a couple of weeks ago, tons of AirPods. And so, you know, that that's that's a barometer for me on, on, on the tech. And I got to say, Apple, for better or for worse, or whatever it's doing market-wise in the tablet, phone, and laptop desktop space, they are killing it in peripherals. And, you know, we've talked about the, the watch piece uh, a number of times in the past that the Apple Watch is just dominating Wear OS. And I would say that that you know, I uh, Apple. I'm sorry, Google and Microsoft both have wireless uh, earpieces. Although the uh, the Microsoft ones, we haven't talked about it in the podcast, but uh, Microsoft released their own version of those. But to be frank, they're bizarre. They're big. They kind of look like you've probably seen. Uh, uh, Folks that have the kind of earplug, the big things that when you uh, uh, pierce your ear and have a big plug thing in it that kind of extends out your lobe, they kind of look like that, but something stuck in your ear, which I think is kind of bizarre. And then also the ones I saw pictures of were orange and Microsoft was excited because, oh, you can also, this was weird. Also, you can you know, put together like 
PowerPoint slides. You can use the ear, the the ear thing to go on slides. It's like I don't really want to be the guy that's like trying to get his slides going by tapping on his ear. I think Apple's dominating the space. Well, and let me say one other thing as a pro, you know, watch user, uh, and, you know, because I can, and it's just kind of geeky. Um, maybe a month or so ago, I went ahead and figured out how to use my Apple Watch as a remote control. And so yeah. <clears throat> I am I don't use it that much. I, I'm on my laptop doing demo stuff for students via, via um, Apple TV in my classroom. But on Sundays, I'm teaching a Sunday school class. And it is just really awesome because I, I like to have a remote control and I'm using a television to just sit there with my phone and, and advance. So my workflow for that, I think I posted about it. I, I still use Google Slides because I love to share my content via Google, but I download my Google Slides as a PowerPoint, throw it into Keynote. I have to check a little bit because with fonts and some of the slides where I've got a lot of different objects, you know, sometimes it, I got to move stuff around or I just delete the slide and download a JPEG version from Google Slides and put it in. But And then I'll download the videos and I'll actually put them in Keynote because then there's no buffering. There's no, I don't even have to be on the internet. You know, it's literally just all there. But you you do have to have your Apple Watch and an Apple iPhone and an Apple laptop in order for that solution to work. I did try with Google Slides. There's a the only one I found, and this was a year, a, you know, a year or so ago. Uh, there's a website, and you would go to that web page, and then it was a, a tie-in. I think it was a an extension or an add-on for Google Slides, and so it it kind of worked, but it wasn't super responsive, and it was just easier to use a plug-in, um, right. you know, remote control. These are this is the Dino Stick that we've been you know using at work. You have to remember you're digging a hole going down to go forward, but it's got the laser pointer and, and whatever. I'm a fan of just simple you know, left and right, up and down, not a really complex remote control. So anyway, I could be using something like that, but geek factor. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm enjoying my Apple watch. So I still think you, you should, uh, you should give it a shot. But. Yeah. Well, and I got to say, and I'll mention it again, I'm really hopeful that now that Google has purchased Fitbit, that they will take uh, medical analytics more seriously. It feels like it's a really unique opportunity for Google to correct some wrongs uh, in Wear OS where they felt dramatically behind by not kind of keeping up with uh, some of the interesting technical pieces there. But the Apple Watch remains a very interesting prospect to me entirely because of the health stuff. Yep, definitely. Well, hey, if we've got any live viewers out there, we want to encourage folks to uh, chime in with any comments or questions that you might have. Um, we will see those comments in our StreamYard dashboard here off to the side. Um, where do you want to begin with this week's news, Jason? Sure. Well, let's go through some Chrome OS stuff. Uh, several interesting bits here. Probably the, the big headline is that uh, and this has been uh, um, uh, reported in a number of media, uh, number of media areas, including our good friends at Nine to Five Google. But Google announced uh, last week that over a hundred Chromebook models um, will receive one more year of uh, updates beyond what was already scheduled. And uh, as it turns out, uh, I went and looked at, and I do own a variety of Chrome OS devices. Every single device I own that has not already been end, end of life had a year added to it. And that's an extraordinarily piece of good news. We've talked about in the past that while the end of life thing, I think is quite fair that, that they guarantee six years now, 
in newly released Chromebooks, uh, and in some cases they'll go up to seven years now with the new extension. I think six years is really all you can expect out of a technology investment, to be frank, even with a, a, a medium and Windows laptop, a six or seven year old medium uh, and Windows laptop is going to be pretty slow and decrepit after six or seven years of updates. But it's extraordinarily good news that Google's going in this direction. And almost all the hallelujahs that I saw were from educational folks that were managing Chromebooks inside their district. And so great news. Um, I think I can't remember if we reported it's here last week or not. Lenovo had actually jumped the gun and I, I haven't read anything accounting for that. They had announced that uh, sub, several of their popular education models were going to receive an extra year and then Google went ahead and upped it for everything. Um, I will say that I still think that the best investment strategy for even medium power users, I'm not just talking about casual users, uh, but even folks that are, tend to be advanced casual users is to buy uh, a little higher up on the hardware, understanding that after five, six, seven years of updates that a computer is likely to be unusably slow, not because of the operating system, but because of the advances of websites, you know, and of course Chrome is best known for being uh, uh, responsive to websites, right? That's your access to most items is through the web. But great news that all the great i5, i3, m5, m7, i7, Chromebooks, Chromeboxes, um, Chrome Sticks will be given another year so that you can take advantage of that great hardware. So I know you no longer wear a tech director hat, Wes, but any thoughts on that from the tech director standpoint? It's fantastic. Uh, you know, we have some Chrome devices that are going to be going end of life that were going to be going end of life this year. And so, you know, I think we, you know, we still need to be refreshing devices, but that's, you know, definitely welcome. Do you know what precipitated that? Did you read any new rumors about why Google's doing that all of a sudden? I, I did not, although I do know that there is, and these are just in forums, I, and including uh, the, the Google Apps for Education forum, there is oftentimes complaints when the faster Chromebooks go out of, of, of service. And, you know, I, I, I personally find a lot of value in some of the, the, the medium spec Chromebooks, the things with i3 and i5 chips in them, eight gigabytes of RAM, larger uh, uh, hard drives inside of the Chromebooks. I find a lot of value in that, but when you buy those in a district for teachers or administrators or perhaps for an advanced use uh, with students, um, to have only six years of updates if you're investing for the long term, you know, seemed like it, it, it did decrease the value proposition. So I'm sure that had to be part of it. Well, let's pick up one more Apple article real quick. Um, this one uh, is 9 to 5 Mac on October 3rd. Restore your iPad icons to larger versions. I'm feeling old because I'm sitting here going, these iPad app icons are not, you know, not, not big enough for me. Uh, and yeah, sure enough, you can just go right into your settings and pop them right back to their regular size. So uh, I have updated to the iPad OS, iOS 13. I also actually updated my Mac to the latest Catalina um, which incidentally, uh, ha this was something that Mojave did, but the screenshot functionality is better. And boy, that, that's a challenge. How do you get your head around the new features that come out, you know, for, uh, a new version of, of, of an operating system? Um, I'm considering doing something maybe over Christmas that might be, you know, some kind of 
people do the little, you know, wine and paint little things that uh, I don't know if that's a thing in Missoula, but it's a thing here where people go, you know, yeah. make a painting and draw. And anyway, we've talked about, you know, doing something like that with bring your iPad, you know, to learn the latest features. But anyway, uh, I'm glad that that setting is available. And if anybody has tips about how they you know, end up, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should just go through the tips app, right? Because the iPad has, has an app specifically for tips and maybe that's what I should do, you know, as far as getting up to speed, but that's kind of a quick one. Um, the one thing I was most excited about and honestly have not played with a lot is that iPad OS still now <clears throat> and iOS 13 has full support for Google docs, uh, right within the, uh, Safari browser. And so that is not actually something now that I think about it, I've actually tried yet. Uh, I've just been, you know, continuing to use the built-in apps, but the fact that we've got greater capabilities in terms of making this more desktop-like, it's not gonna, you know, have me give up my laptop, but, um, you know, I continue to, to have, you know, believe this is just a fantastic teaching tool and learning tool, as well as consumptive tool for, you know, reading my eBooks, watching videos, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I think well, that's I, all the Apple news we got this week. Well, I will say I did recently. Um, I had yeah, my my last Apple device uh, was an iPad Mini two that I had uh, given to my wife about eighteen months ago, and she had kind of stopped using it in part because the tablet form factor, you know, is is decreasing in in desire in the marketplace, and I think she just preferred to use her phone over the iPad. I did take it back from her and. It, it, reset it to my own account. I did note that uh, iOS 13 is not available on the iPad uh, mini two, which is sad uh, because I do like some of the features there, but I still think it's the best tablet form factor. Like I, and I am, I'm not thousand dollar tempted, um, but I am tempted to, to pick up one of the larger professional iPads and get the good keyboard case with it. And, you know, I've seen probably two dozen articles about folks that have really been able to move their mobile game into entirely to the iPad without having to have a laptop. That is tempting to me, especially at the, the 11, 12 inch form factor, but um, yeah, it remains a, a stunningly good form factor. So, okay, a couple other quick Google things. Uh, we can go through these pretty quickly. Uh, first, an interesting stat from Chrome Unbox on October 31st, uh, Chrome sale, Chromebook sales are continuing to boom. A lot of notes in the media in the last week about how non-education customers are starting to pick up on this. I know that personally, um, I am looking at updates for my parents' laptops, and I'm probably going to go with Chromebooks for both of them, Chromebooks and iPads, actually, um, uh, as my strategy there. But the more interesting stat there was that Android app usage is up 300% year over year. And what is interesting to me about that is that I was just thrilled when Android apps were brought to the, the Chrome OS uh, architecture. I, I love my Android phone. Uh, the app store is amazing. There are hundreds of thousands of, of, of great apps on there. Uh, uh, you know, the, the two or three million or four million or however many they're advertising now, the vast majority of those aren't very good, but the good apps are great. And if you dig a little, you can oftentimes find great stuff. And I thought that was going to be a really great way to provide some extensibility to my Chrome OS device. And to be honest, I don't use any Android apps ever. And I am on a Chromebook almost 100% of the time. I use a Chromebook, Chromebox at work. I use a Chromebook mobily. And tonight I'm joining via a, a, a Chromebook at home. And I never, ever, ever, ever use Android apps. And so I am curious about that fact. And I wonder if there's an increase there, there will be more attention from app developers to make their apps 
Chrome OS friendly. And I will say, um, I do like, for example, Microsoft's uh, Office apps on Chrome look really great. They are a very functional. They work really well. But in the end, I can use Office 365 on the web, and that's as good or better and tends to have a little less wonkiness. And so I am curious now that Android apps are a, a bigger part of this uh, architecture, if that will make a big difference in regards to um, uh, developers developing towards that platform. So I have to ask Wes, in context of you as a former tech director and someone that works in an institution with Chromebooks, was there ever any great implementation of any Android apps educationally in your institution? Not to my knowledge. I was excited about it as well, thinking this is going to, you know, be beneficial. Um, and I don't think we had, we had much going on. Uh, I'm actually going to be in the process this year of um, doing an audit of some of the, of what we're doing, you know, with our Chromebooks and, um, I don't, in fact, I'm looking for a framework in terms of like, I'm going to cough here for a second. Hang on a second. Sorry about that. Bad radio. Um, I'm going to do an audit of, as far as, you know, trying to, to do some kind of categorization about the different ways that uh, technology is being integrated and, um, you know, just kind of where, where do things fall as far as the ways uh, teachers are using the tools. And so um, we've got a lot of things like in our labs when teachers will, you know, take students there um, to be able to do things, but I'm not, I'm not sure, um, I, you know, didn't get those kinds of requests. Now for faculty, you know, we've certainly got a host of, of other kinds of apps and websites and things like that that people are doing, but I don't, I don't think that the, you know, the, the migration of, functionality, and that's not the right way to say it, but the ways in which the web is matured and things just run inside the browser and there's so much that you can do there, um, you know, I think that's pretty much where we live in terms of our learning and, and working. So, right. Hey, and, Peggy's there. Hello, Peggy. Glad to have you with us. And then one other quick article. We mentioned this probably half dozen times before at my insistence, but uh, Chrome OS 78 was released today. I noticed my Chrome box received it right away this morning, and it is the final implementation of virtual desktops. There's an excellent article from Chrome Unboxed today that talks about some extra steps you want to take to kind of create some Jedi tricks for yourself to be able to manage virtual desktops. And then one other curiosity that I, I, I read just briefly earlier today when I was putting together links that I thought was super interesting, uh, Chrome unboxed uh, a link to a video of some drop and torture tests of, of uh, uh, Chrome OS devices. And the video noted they, they used a scoring system to decide what was the most tough uh, Chrome device, and I was quite surprised to find out that the Pixelbook, which is Chrome's, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Google's excellent model, 2017 model, uh, which is still available, by the way, that the, the newest uh, uh, Chrome OS device from Google happens to be a tra more traditional laptop, but this is the Pixelbook, which is a four-in-one, right? So it flips around into a tablet mode, and you get an opportunity to utilize different pieces. This somehow, even though it's made of thin aluminum um, and glass and by every like feel of it, it, like it's a great feeling device, but it feels fragile, right? I mean, this is this is glass right here, right? It's got a lot of, of, of materials on it that are breakable. It scored highest in the stress tests, the torture tests 
of the video that they show on that site. So I have a hard time believing that, but wow, that was super interesting to me. And one thing that I have kind of disliked about the direction of thinner and smaller and more fragile materials is that, you know, I, I use my devices, right? I carry them in bags. They get thrown around in, you know, in protected sleeves, but thrown around. And it's interesting to know that, that in that particular case, the hardiest uh, uh, hardware platform was the, the, the Pixel Book, which is made of you know, thin aluminum and glass. Awesome. Well, hey, let's uh, skip down to some security articles, if that's all right. Sure. Um, one of the ones that just really kind of blew my mind this week is from Forbes. This was November 3rd. Chinese hackers just gave us all a reason to stop sending SMS messages. And we were reported on the show perhaps a couple weeks ago for the first time. We might have mentioned it again last week that there's a new standard for text messages that is being adopted. It's going to make text messages, everyone thinks, across all platforms and all carriers more like iMessage with a greater number of usable characters and some more function. But there's still not any encryption. And what this Forbes article basically reveals you know, remember when Snow when Edward Snowden came out with the leaks and there were these different uh, taps, basically, that the National Security Agency of the United States has put on the main pipes that, that have Internet content coming in and out of the United States. And they're basically ingesting every bit of content and then being able to, you know, read that, read, read the mail. Um, that is what this is basically saying in some Chinese entities, which I, I, I guess they're probably state-sponsored, um, are doing with text messages. And so we just shouldn't assume that anything we are putting into an unencrypted messaging platform, and that includes text messaging, you know, isn't being entirely archived by some you know, kind of user that may or may not, that probably has a malicious intent. The entire thing could be put on the dark web I mean, never put a password into a text message. Uh, you know, if you're going to verify something, like let's say you're going to send your, your tax information to your accountant, um, you know, of course you never put the key to un unlock that in the same message. And you really shouldn't even email that, that key at all. If you're gonna send an encrypted file, you want to call the person on the phone and tell them or tell their assistant or whatever, here's what the password is. Don't send that through a text message. So anyway, it's uh, it's a wake up call. And I think probably like a lot of privacy issues, most people out there are saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not a criminal. I'm not doing things that are wrong. Why should I care? But when you think about the complete record of every text message you've sent to anyone being in the hands of someone who just might want to sell your information or use that information to harm you or other people that you know. Um, I just, I really think we are asleep at the wheel when it comes to this. And, and that was an, an eye opener. So have you all, have you transitioned to any other kind of of messaging platform, Jason, a secure messaging platform, or are you happy with text I'm, messaging at this point? I'm pretty much text messaging too. And I use it for a serious amount of my two-factor authentication too. And I really want to move more towards uh, the apps that do that, right? Or maybe one of the so-called RSA keys that, that would allow me another piece of that. It's just not, 
I'm not, I'm not there yet. It's not convenient enough for me to do that. And yeah, the, well, and remember text messaging is, is, a, is a 25 year old platform. It's, it's been something that's been around for a long time and um, has not really received a, a many security updates and is considered, uh, you know, I think too, too ubiquitous to start locking down, right? Like it would be tough to go into another direction with a completely secure platform with a number of phones that are in the wild that, you know, are, have been years since they've received any, any updates for that. So yeah, it's, I read that article too, was terrified from the standpoint of we rely on text messaging so much. I also know there's a lot of platforms on earth that utilize text messaging, that they'll buy cheap SIM cards that only get text messaging to do things like issue commands to major mechanical pieces too. And uh, I don't believe that was mentioned in that article, but there is a, uh, there's a ton of, of, of things that are sent out data wise over text messaging, because it's, again, it's a cheap ubiquitous, ubiquitous platform that uh, would introduce all sorts of scary security things. So yeah, very interesting word of the wise. And I also don't know of an easy alternative, which is part of the reason why I haven't moved in that direction. Sure. Well, and that's the thing, right? Security makes you go through more hoops. I mean, that's the thing yeah. I've talked to people because sometimes I'm pulled in when somebody has a, uh, an iPhone or iPad password reset issue. And usually by the time I would get called, there'd be a lot of frustration and it doesn't really help people at that time feel better to say, you know, if this was easy, you know, it wouldn't be secure, but yes, it's always going to introduce more hoops and, and some more inconveniences. So on that note, let me also pick up another security article. Uh, this one is entitled the best way to tackle the last pass security challenge. This is from how to geek on November 4th. And so a little bit of personal transparency. I um, have utilized the built-in features of password managers, and I use more than one, um, as well as my Google account. So there's no no mystery there about having you know a Google account. Actually, there's a few that we used. We use that at school too. And all of these tools today have basically a checkup feature. It's called different things on different platforms. But what these do is they go through every password that you have that has been saved, compare it to a public database that has been compiled by security researchers and tell you which of these have been have been breached. They're on the dark web right now. And how many of them have are have you repeated? And you know, how how many of these are weak? And I really feel like my computer just reached out and slapped me in the face tonight. I know you said, I think a couple of weeks ago, Jason, that you had successfully completed this process of making sure you have a long, unique password on every single website that you utilize. And so I want to you know, just congratulate you on that. And I want to say to people, this is a best practice, folks. Uh, the number of security breaches, like we are just not going to see a change in, oh, this company got breached. Oh, these passwords are out there. I mean, there's just so much being done online and in general, so many different password you know, policies and, and procedures of companies, of apps, of individuals, are just terrible. And we, we haven't had facial recognition, touch ID, the biometrics. We, we have those to make some things convenient, but that has not changed the reality of what people have saved on websites and the ways in which these things have been compromised. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's another 
look out for the security warning from the EdTech Situation Room. But thankfully, I think it is wonderful, the platforms have brought together the list of compromised passwords. And when, when you see not only like, okay, my account was in this many breaches, but no, this password, you know, these, this number of passwords have all been compromised and these are repeated. And let me tell you, I bet every single person listening to this has at least one regular password that you used for years on a lot of different things. I mean, these tools will tell you how many sites have you still, you know, kept that password on. And so anyway, this is a, a good article uh, you can get into. This is talking about LastPass. You can get into their password check just right through their website. You have to put in your password again to be able to confirm. But it's fantastic that um, these tools are here. And hey, thanks to Jason a couple of weeks ago for mentioning Google's updates and security because that's right built into the Chrome browser or right back, right into your Google account where you can do that kind of checkup and you know, it not only identifies issues, it says, here are the steps, you know, go through and fix these things. So really important for everybody, not only to do for themselves, but talk to your family and your friends, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up, have, have a password conversation with someone in your family over Thanksgiving holidays, you know, we won't say that you'll save lives, but I mean, you can you can potentially stave off some really negative consequences for yourself and for others by encouraging good password hygiene. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I would say, too, that that putting a, a bit of an educational twist on this, too, if you're not having conversations with this with your students, do it now. And I don't care what you teach. Right. And I don't care if you're teaching third graders or, or, or high school seniors or graduate students that this is this information is not getting widely distributed enough amongst the right people to really make a difference in security. And every time you see another article about a password uh, a database compromise that is it's another set of risks that we really need to be working around. So please, please, please have these conversations uh, with everyone you know. Um, I also want to focus on another security article. Um, I had someone talk to me last week when I was mentioning my dissertation. And so uh, she encouraged me to change the way I describe my dissertation work. I did a groundbreaking study on intelligent uh, 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 personal assistance in classrooms. And what's really interesting is that right after I completed my research and wrote and ultimately uh, uh, submitted my dissertation to a committee, there started to become larger questions about security around intelligent personal assistance. And this article absolutely blew me away. The New York Times noted on November 4th, uh, 2019, that, that researchers have said that they can hack an Alexa, Google Home, or Siri with, as it turns out, a laser. So, and of course, I feel like I need to do the Austin Powers laser piece here, right? But with a laser, you can point at a one of these voice microphone devices. And I don't exactly know how it really works with, with the whispering, but apparently you can send audio pulses over the laser and you, uh, you can talk to the device. And researchers at the University of Michigan were able to, I believe at over 230 feet, um, be able to go into one tower, beam a laser to the fourth floor of an office building 230 feet away and issue commands to one of these intelligent personal assistant smart speakers. And of course, 
Um, I will say I am all in on this, these devices at home. I am mostly an Alexa guy. Uh, we have a couple of different, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry for saying Madam A's name uh, out loud, but uh, we, we've got some Amazon devices at home and we have nothing really secure on there. You can turn on and off our, our entertainment center. You can turn on and off a couple lights in the house that have weird uh, plugs and switches all over the place. But it's not like we're opening garage doors or dealing with, you know, Bluetooth or Wi-Fi based locks, but they were able to issue commands, including garage door opening commands to things hundreds of feet away using a laser. And to be honest, the way I read this article, it's hard to know how to actually deal with this because of, you know, the notion of being able to stress voice patterns or, or voice pulses via the laser in that way. So well, it, at the end of the article, it says, keep the, keep the voice assistant out of the line of sight from yes. the outside. So I guess yep. don't, don't have it right by a window where somebody can shoot a laser. And let me just say, folks, if somebody's shooting a laser inside your house to try to, you know, get your voice assistant, you better have a penetration test of your home and be looking at all other kinds of things because that would be, you know, kind of wacko. But I will say this too. We have had our, our IT manager has told me several teachers asking about bringing a smart speaker from home. In fact, I think I know a teacher who has one who has put it on our network. Um, I have not done that. I've wanted to do that. I definitely think this is part of living in the future. In fact, I don't know if I'll, when I'll pull this off, there's an upcoming conference. I've thought about trying to squeeze it in. Like the, the, the topic of the talk is like how to live in the future today, you know, talking about social, using Twitter, using podcasts to learn. And then, you know, smart assistants. I just like, you know, every morning in the shower, I'm telling, I'm, I'm, I'm just using my voice to say what song I'd like to hear. It's great. Um, but if you're going to put something in your classroom, I certainly think you should not connect any of your regular accounts to that smart device, right? Because let's just say you leave the smart speaker in the classroom. If it's connected to your personal Gmail, your school Gmail, there's a lot of commands that people can issue. And I mean, it's going to be a stretch. I, I doubt there's anybody who's you know had their home unlocked because the custodian has said something into the smart speaker that they left in their room. But these kinds of smart, these, these smart speakers and smart assistants are, they're getting more and more power. And so I do think it's wise to be wary. I'm not as concerned about privacy of students, you know, as I, as I am. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Can you, can you have it read your mail? I know you can have it tell you what's on your calendar. There's just all kinds of potential privacy issues. Right. Well, I'll give you a HIPAA example, right? That, uh, you know, if you have a, I have a constant glucose monitor, I'm a diabetic. And so I have a, a system literally plugged into my stomach that's checking blood sugar. You can have, I believe it's, it's uh, any of the smart speakers tell you what your current blood sugar is. And that that's health data, right? I mean, it's relatively low value health data, knowing what my blood sugar is right now. And by the way, it's 113. Um, the, it's relatively low value health data, but I think it exposes a lot of risk there. And if you have anything that that's like reading email, which I know a couple of the experimental 
um, a skills is what they call them on the Amazon Miss A environment is skills, right? And that does expose things. Um, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but I sat through a pitch from a startup a couple of years ago that wanted student data to be accessible via um, a, a smart speaker. And I like it, it rang so many FERPA uh, bells for me that it was hard to sit through the whole pitch without kind of shuddering a little bit. But yeah, I to be honest, I, I get it. And, and I, I have to say, I think there's some potential in, in intelligent personal assistance, maybe more in individual devices than in smart speakers, but I would not put a, a an Apple speaker or a Google Home or an Alexa in classroom at this point. I just think there's too many question marks. And more importantly, none of these uh, devices, none of them are keeping up on security updates. And in fact, there is a, a, a great article from The Verge today, after five years of Amazon's Miss A, why isn't it better? I'm um, talking about how kind of uh, 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 slow the development's been and they're not that much more functional and that a lot of it's really pedestrian. I think that works against putting them in a classroom too, because if they're pedestrian and they can access data in a clumsy way, I don't think I want it sitting in my classroom ready to, to ask stuff. That doesn't mean you can't have it on a smartphone. It doesn't mean you can't have it on a, a tablet. Uh, all of the uh, uh, intelligent personal assistants work via those devices. But the smart speakers, I mean, they're great and they're handy. I just don't think they're privacy driven yet. So let's pick up a related article to that in terms of privacy. This is Lifehacker on Monday, November 4th. How to automatically delete your Google data and why you should by Brendan Hess. You know, I actually don't agree with all of this. I just, I continue to love the way with just the recommendation engine within, within YouTube, you know, it's just helping me discover content. That's fantastic that I'm, that I'm using to, you know, teach with and to share. Um, you know, this is pointing out, as we've said before in the show, Google gives us some great access to uh, web history, app history, uh, you know, search history. Here, this is interesting. I I have actually shown my students this year um, incognito mode. Some schools will have that turned off completely. But, you know, I have a student who really likes Fender guitars. And we were talking about tracking and ads and how all those work. And he piped up with, oh, yeah, he sees these, you know, ads all the time. I put in a search for something the other day on YouTube. And then I was like, oh, shoot, I... I shouldn't have done that on my profile, right? Because as soon as you are doing a search on your profile for something, that is, you know, saved as data that informs the engine, hey, you know, Wes is interested in this kind of a thing. And so as we want students to become more media literate and more aware of the ways that the web works, the ways that they are tracked and that we all are tracked, and then what we do to basically assert some agency and ownership over our personal information. I think this article by Lifehacker is worth considering. Maybe, I mean, hey, let, let us know. Give us a shout out. If you totally agree with this and think, you know, we should all be deleting our, our Google data, um, you can also have, have it periodically do that. Like you can set up a schedule for that. So I'm, I'm not saying I agree with this article, but I definitely think the topic is a great one. Uh, where are you, Jason, with thinking about deleting Google data? And does the type of data, because location data is in there too, right? Everywhere yeah. you've been. So where are you with that? No. 
See, this is one of those things that, I mean, you know, as much as I want to be an informed consumer and I want to help teachers and students also be informed consumers, I have what is probably inappropriate faith that Google is going to do right by me, right? Like, I get that they're using it to target advertising, and I also do utilize incognito windows quite a bit, and, and I applaud um, your school for not turning off incognito mode, right? That like My decision as tech director. So. Yeah, so someone made the the great decision there for that piece. <laughs> um, the, you know, the it's a great part of 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 strategy because there are times when I want to shop for something, um, and I'm not talking about like it, it's it's so easy to assume that people are talking about things that you you are embarrassed about. It's not true at all. It's things that you just don't want to be reminded of all the time, right? Like if I'm searching for health information um, or medications or health apparatus, which is where I might have just made up, or other pieces that I'm interested in, I don't necessarily want all my advertising to move in that direction, right? Like I've noticed, for example, that it's been less so in the last year or so. Um, I've, I've mentioned in the past in the podcast, I had a, a, a kidney transplant in 2015. I occasionally search for medical information on that. And then my advertisement turns into all renal failure all the time. And it's just not, I mean, you know, it's one thing if I'm looking for camping supplies and you're constantly trying to sell me new boots, whether, you know, you're, you're selling me, you know, more and more drug information that I'm not particularly interested in. I think there's a good legitimate reason to do that. But I also have an assumption that Google is not going to do something stupid with my data. And one of the reasons why I think I know that is that they will show you what data they have on you and they will allow you to delete it, right? That's something that almost no one else does, right? Like I use probably 25 sites in any given week, including banking sites, shopping sites. None of them allow me to go in and delete my tracks, whereas Google will go in and with one button allow me to do that. So it's not something I'm particularly interested in right now, but I am in enthused and uh, uh, happy that I have the ability to do so. And I think that's one of the reasons why I continue to trust Google with my data. So Peggy's asking some good questions here in the chat uh, about incognito. So yes, if you do a search in incognito mode, a search is not saved onto your profile because you haven't logged into a Google account where that's being saved to. Uh, she asked if it's easy to go incognito. Um, yeah, it is in different browsers. Firefox actually has a whole browser that's called Firefox Focus. Um, and this is interesting and important conversations, right? Because as soon as we start talking about not having footprints recorded, you know, we start wondering why are we doing this? And is, are there legitimate reasons for doing it? There absolutely are legitimate reasons for not wanting, you know, something saved onto your Chrome profile um, or your, or whatever, you know, the profile that, that you have um, on, on a different device or whatever. So uh, when you open up Safari on your uh, device and you tap on the um, bottom right corner uh, where you're gonna be tapping on the, uh, the tabs, once you tap that, there's a little icon here in the left called private, and then you're in private browsing mode. That would be in Safari, but you can do that in your other browsers as well. And I mean, this is a really basic thing about how the web works, right? That like every single search that you do is being aggregated together with, you know, web cookies and tied to email address. If they have your phone number, your information, it's part of this opaque cloud of data that we don't have direct ability to go in and see. And, you know, all of those dots are being connected and they're being connected for students as well. So one of the things, and I think, 
yeah, I shared it as a geek of the week. Maybe last week was this, the spinner.com, which is this terrible website that lets you try and subconsciously hack people that, you know, um, maybe get somebody to settle out of court and whatever. There's all these different campaigns, but it, it all happens with a link and a cookie that's set. And so, I mean, who, who thought, who thought that simply clicking a link could be so powerful, but I think that's, that's an interesting media literacy and school IT management, you know, conversation about incognito yeah. mode. And it's just, it's just really practical though, right? Cause we've probably had this situation. Sometimes it's a creepy one where like you said something. So I just heard a story about this a couple of weeks ago when I did that internet safety session, that guy told a story, he was with his wife. He said, I want to eat, you know, this kind of food. And then she just looked at her phone and there was the ad. So and there are microphone permissions that you can check for different kinds of apps. And, you know, these are the things that um, certainly create a perception on the part of some that our phones are listening to us at all times. You need to check the permissions that you have set and you need to look at the apps that you have installed. I don't think everybody's phone is listening to them and you can, people are monitoring that kind of traffic, right? It's not, this is not a hot mic, you know, sending everything to Apple or Google or, or whatever 24 seven. And a smart speaker isn't doing that either in the sense of just being a hot mic. But anyway, I think these are good conversations to have. So. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, we talk about students and teachers a lot too. Please also have these with your family. Yep. Definitely. Okay, well, we are near the top of the hour. Let me take a quick look here to see if there's anything else that I want to make sure gets covered this Pick week. Pick up some quick ones. Let's do just like a couple bounce back. Sure. Great New York Times article on November 3rd that talks about the rise of TikTok, which was an American-created app that was eventually picked up by a Chinese company. And now Silicon Valley, uh, well, actually, there's two groups are firing up about this. TikTok has become a common uh, a discussion topic in Congress. And there is some talk about, you know, with uh, how TikTok has really taken over and become a really uh, a popular app across the uh, architecture of, 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 of teens and 20-somethings, that there's some talk about regulation of the app. But more importantly, that article talks about a lot of things that Silicon Valley big tech is doing to try to be competitive with TikTok and try to create an alternative to that because it's starting to steal business away from old-fashioned uh, 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 apps like Instagram and Facebook. And there is a security inquiry. I think that some you know lawmakers are trying to to launch against TikTok. I, we may have had that in the show uh, last week. Hey, this is pretty good. AT and T fined sixty million dollars for throttling unlimited data plans. This is from The Verge on November fifth. I worked for AT and T for two years. Why on earth am I saying it's good? It's because I was part of that group. And the article indicates that you don't have to file to be part of that, that class action lawsuit or whatever. If you were a customer during that time, AT&T is supposed to send you a check. And I'm fairly passionate about this because I had some conversations with AT&T employees over tethering and you know, what amounted to at the time jailbreaking my phone so that I could tether my phone. And um, it had to do with this promise that they had about an unlimited plan, which was not unlimited. It was not marketed in a straightforward, honest manner. And so I am glad that there's being, that there is a settlement to this. And I think we should have truth in advertising, right? If it's not unlimited, then don't call it unlimited. And now, you know, people are being a little more clear when there are limitations and things like that. But hey, this is why consumer protection is a good thing and we need to have it. 
Great. Outstanding. Um, there is, let's see, I just had it and I lost it, Jason. Oh, um, Ars Technica uh, 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 on November 5th noted that the original Pixel phone, this was released uh, three years ago, uh, it was the first in the new series of Google phones, has received its last update. And it's interesting because it wasn't supposed to get Android 10. As it turns out, Android 10 did appear on the original generation of Pixel phone, but I briefly owned one earlier this year. I bought a used one and then traded it in for the, the Pixel 3a. I have to say, for being a three-year-old phone, it was extraordinarily fast and smooth, an outstanding piece of hardware. It just goes back to the fact that I think all of our manufacturers could spend more time trying to eke out more life with security updates for hardware that's past its prime. Here's a super interesting kind of miscellaneous article. This is from The Verge on Halloween, October 31st. Virtual reality experiences can be violent and intrusive. They need an artist's touch by Rebecca Koenig. Um, this is a very interesting article that um, talks about some uh, interdisciplinary projects that Yale and some other universities have been doing. And they're getting artists involved in helping design this experience, these kinds of immersive experiences that have virtual reality. Now, I've had the, the experience. <coughs> Pardon me. I need to get a little medicine for that cough. Um, I've had the experience at the movie theater before, uh, not that often, thankfully, of just like not being happy at all with where the director and the the creators are taking us, you know, and here you are sitting in the theater, you've paid this and, you know, I mean, they're going to take you wherever they want you to, but they're saying, you know, virtual reality with those headsets is you know, even more immersive. They say that you shouldn't just assume everyone's going to be excited and want to just jump right into this. Um, and then it's really, a, I think, a call for uh, multidisciplinary approaches, the ways in which people bring different lenses to an experience when you're going to want to have people, you know, immersed in some kind of an environment. Um, it's also, I think, a good example of why we need diversity and we need diverse groups collaborating on these kinds of things. So that was interesting. And, uh, you know, actually, I've got a VR related geek of the week, too, that uh, that ties to that. So we're still not at the day where VR has become this huge, the, the rage, um, but it is, it's still coming. And this is a good perspective that I hadn't heard before. And then one last one, uh, Adobe Max was earlier this week and they had some great announcements of where Adobe products are going. I do want to mention one because I do think it's going to have a great educational impact. Adobe has unveiled that next year will release something called Photoshop Camera App, which is an application, I would assume, on, mo more on the Android side of things, although I think there are alternative camera apps you can utilize in, in iOS as well. But the idea is, is that you with an Adobe account can download this app. It takes place of the, the native camera on your device, but it adds in all of the tweaks that you can do on a traditional DSLR camera so that you can, as, as, as camera phones become uh, more and more and more advanced, you can start to take advantage of some of the things that DSLR cameras can do in regards to the f-stop and, and, and other uh, tweaks to do that. And I think that's amazing because uh, we offer a digital photography course at, at, at my institution, the Montana Digital Academy, and we do demand that students utilize a digital camera, right, that has the ability to tweak things on that because that's what photographers do um, when they utilize cameras. But uh, camera phones and, you know, smartphones have not really had the tweak available to them to where you could utilize some of the advanced features of DSLR cameras. And so Adobe goes in that direction, especially if the app is released for free and, you know, can become 
have a replacement app for your camera. I think it's an enormous advancement on on, on utilizing smartphones to uh, do interesting things uh, from a photography standpoint. Quick screen time article. This is from CNN and it was from Monday, also November 4th. MRI shows screen time linked to lower brain development in preschoolers. This is one of those articles that some people might be quick to grab and try to generalize across the whole spectrum of people. This is like 47 different individuals that were studied. The um, the medical you know, community is really clear on young, young children. And what they say is no screen time except video chatting live with grandparents and others like young babies and, and young kids can can tell that it's live and it's not Memorex or whatever, if you remember that uh, old reference. Um, so, you know, I think, of course, we need to know about the effects of screen time, but it's, it's important to look at aggregated studies and not just individual studies. You know, this idea that brain development, and it kind of goes into a little bit of what white matter is in the brain, et cetera. I mean, it makes you wonder, when are we going to have these kinds of educational research where it's like, we scanned their brain and th these kids weren't as smart. You know, these kids were smarter, you know, because we, we could tell, we scanned their brains. Um, so anyway, this was a CNN article that was kind of a typical headline in that respect. And I would just encourage everyone to, make sure we're looking at aggregated studies and not just individual studies, but also to recognize the medical community has a lot of consensus that, you know, very young children um, should not be, uh, you know, handed screens. And I guess that's one other thing to point out from this article. And that is that a ton of kids are being handed phones, right? Um, it says that, oh, studies have shown, uh, 90%, yeah, this is it, 90% of children are using screens by age one. <laughs> so that's a lot of folks. And you can just go out to a restaurant and see how many, you know, parents are handing the phone, you know, to their child. So anyway, let's be safe out there, folks. And we shouldn't be giving the, you know, pre-Kers devices to just, you know, utilize probably much at all. Yep, willy-nilly. So well, uh, it's one minute to the top of the hour, Wes. Um, what do you have this week for your Geek of the Week? Okay, so uh, quick Geeks of the Week. Um, learned about this from Kevin Hermanson, our eighth grade social studies history teacher. The New York Times has a phenomenal section called Immersive AR-VR, AR standing for augmented reality and VR for VR reality. As an example, they have a pretty amazing segment called Apollo 11 as they shot it. And this is in the same... Um, tradition as the New York Times doing some other kinds of articles that are just immersive media experiences, really amazing, showing what the possibilities are in the same way that National Geographic has done that with their app, their iPad app and, and uh, just, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. So commend that to folks. There's different uh, segments that you can check out. I also have a link to Troy Hunt's Twitter reply. So Troy Hunt is the creator, the uh, Siri researcher that created the website, um, Have I Been Pwned? And I sent him a message saying, hey, um, I was uh, in the Canva May 29 security breach, but I was using single sign-on on Google. Does that mean that password's out there? And he said, no, that was a token. So it was temporary but I thought that was kind of cool to have a security researcher like that actually reply on Twitter. And then the last thing is also a thank you to Jason. It's Darknet Diaries podcast episode 30, Shamoon. I listened to the first episode there about the Stuxnet virus, which is the joint U.S.-Israeli created super virus that destroyed 
the uh, Iranian centrifuges that were processing uh, uranium, which by the way, this is in the news right now about you know things that, are, that, that, that Iran is doing with their centrifuges. I didn't know that Iran's response to that was against Saudi Aram, Aramco, which is the biggest corporation in the entire world. They took out something like 38,000 computers that they said if you stack end to end would be six miles long. And they put a, I guess, a worm on these computers, which literally deleted everything on these machines. This is the most devastating hack ever in the history of the freaking planet. And I had never heard of it before. I didn't get to do it. I had my last class with half my students today and, and the trimester ends tomorrow. I'm going to create a short little, uh, you know, Adobe Spark video, uh, crazy hacks you may not have never heard of before. And certainly Stuxnet will be one. This will be one too. So Jason's recommended before the Darknet Diaries. It's a podcast episode. It's phenomenal. Yeah, a great podcast. And I got to say, really compelling uh, drive time uh, radio too. The, I've listened to probably six episodes. It was a couple weeks back when I needed to make a five-hour drive in, in each direction uh, to a, a, a meeting here in Montana. And great stuff. And really compelling, uh, really well-done radio. So I have a quick one here that it, the, reading this article actually inspired me to maybe think about the ways I'm doing things a little differently. Uh, there's a really uh, interesting article from, and I've lost it. Where are you at? There we are from one zero, which is uh, on medium on October 29th. Uh, they, it's a really great uh, investigative journalist style article on Amazon basics batteries. And it cited some things that were super interesting to me. Obviously I don't use a ton of replaceable batteries. I will say probably the number one application for me is mice. Um, but I had used to be really into rechargeable batteries and somehow I got out of that at some point because I'm not really sure why. And probably because of the ubiquity and cheapness of decent batteries that were available at a relatively low price. And in fact, I do utilize Amazon basics batteries. This article goes into detail about first the shoddy practices that Amazon utilizes to acquire and manufacture those batteries. And then more importantly, how much energy goes into the manufacturing of a double A AA or triple A battery and how it's way more than the energy it's providing for you in that device. And so after reading that article, I've been inspired to look at a sustainable way for me to go back to rechargeable batteries. And my guess is, is you should too. So Wes, uh, we're at the end of our podcast. Tell me a little bit, where can the people find you on the internet? I am W Fryer on Twitter, periodically posting on my blog, speedofcreativity.org. Every day, every other day, uh, posting new slideshows on my school website for middle school media and digital literacy. And that is on mdtech, mdtec.cassidy.org. And I think I actually haven't put that one in the show notes, and I will add that one to the show notes this week. Great. How about and you, Jason? I am Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. Um, I blog at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. I strongly encourage you, if you have not already done so, consider attending the NCC conference March 2020 in fabulous Seattle, Washington. Not only will uh, several great presentations I'm involved with be, be featured there, we have a great lineup of featured speakers this year and we're getting ready to announce uh, a great event regarding esports, and we're going to be focusing on including a panel and some demonstrations esports. You can go to www.ncc.org. But that's not really what this whole thing is. We are the 
EdTech Situation Room podcast. You can find us here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time. It's daylight savings times, you know, totally messed up the UTC. It's like 4 or 2 or 3 a.m. UTC. In any case, if you can join us live, it's great. We tweet out over EdTechSR, at EdTechSR, uh, to get go to our live broadcast. We'd love to have a live studio audience. Uh, you can ask questions of us during that time. But if you can't make it live, we always have copies available wherever fire podcasts are aggregated, or you can go to our website, www.edtechsr.com. You can find show notes there with links to everything we talked about tonight. And you can download little tiny audio copies for your phone if podcasting isn't good enough. We bid you have a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy. And Dr. Fryer... We have one more question from the chat room. Peggy needs to get it in. Is this only true for Amazon basic batteries or all batteries unless they're rechargeable? What you I my understanding is that all batteries uh, are upside down in regards to the energy expended to create them versus what they put out. And so there's a lot of sketchy things about the Amazon basics batteries that that article goes into some detail about, but I was surprised at the amount of disparity between the energy that goes into a battery and what you get out of it. And there you have it. So again, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy. We'll see you next week on the EdTech Situation Room.